come to Washington, or when the president travels abroad, who's pulling the strings behind the scenes, making the events we see on TV come to life? Our special guest this week, Ambassador Rufus Gifford, Chief of Protocol for the U.S. State Department and former U.S. Ambassador to Denmark. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. Welcome back to Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, our first episode back since uh, we've seen the results. We had Josh Kroshauer on for our last episode, giving us a preview of what might come on election night. And uh, while we continue to await the final, final, final results, which could still be in just a few weeks, perhaps down in a state called Georgia. We uh, are obviously uh, still unpacking the results of what seems to be a mixed bag, not the red tsunami that some predicted, uh, not a red wave completely in most places, or at least in some places. I would argue a pretty good night still for House Republicans, an amazing night for Ron DeSantis down in Florida, and a not so good night in certain states that elected people or at least nominated people in Republican primaries who were, let's say, out of the mainstream. Yeah, I mean, I think Donald Trump had a really tough night. I I feel for Kevin McCarthy as much as I can feel for a future Republican speaker because he's going to have a relatively slim majority uh, with lots of parts of the caucus all thinking that they can, they can dictate the terms. Um, but yeah, it really wasn't the red wave everybody saw coming. I think John Fetterman uh, ran a really strong campaign despite uh, a serious medical issue six weeks ago. Um, And he was really able to connect with voters in the red parts of that state. And I think, you know, Republicans and Democrats ought to be looking at that race as we look forward to the presidential, because that's where the presidential race is going to be run on run and won on kitchen table issues in uh, exurbs of major cities in, in post-industrials, you know, states. I'm going to throw out a, a slightly different take uh, on what my key takeaways uh, from tonight and why I think this is still a very, very, very bad night for Joe Biden. I agree with you. It's a bad night for Donald Trump because of some key candidates um, he meddled in primaries with um, that uh, hurt uh, both their races and the down ballots within those states, um, impacting uh, the House, uh, not just the Senate. But if you take a look at some key states here, uh, Wisconsin going red, right? It did not go red uh, for Republicans two years ago. Republicans need Wisconsin. Uh, I take a look at uh, Ohio, solidly again in Republican camps, key state, key battleground state, which is basically now used to be one that we were really staying up late now, uh, as we recall in our youth for presidential elections, solidly in the Republican camp. Florida is no longer that purple state, it would appear, that we remember from 2000 uh, and beyond. This is now looking like a solidly Republican state. Arizona, a very close election still. 
I think a lot of people went in believing Blake Masters would lose considerably, um, still closer uh, than expected. Nevada, right? Again, a key battleground state. Donald Trump lost. Um, it, you, the list here goes on. My point being, with the right candidates and the right message, um, there is clearly the ability for Republicans to do well. And that's why I would call this Ron DeSantis's night in, in general. Um, clearly, individuals, are all to their credit, winning their races elsewhere. Um, but, you know, good night uh, for Ron DeSantis 2022. Great night for Ron DeSantis 2024. Bad night for Joe Biden. Bad night for Donald Trump. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, let's uh, move the politics to the side because our guest today is one of my favorite people uh, I've ever worked with in Washington. Uh, Former National Finance Director of the Democratic National Committee, former National Finance Director of Barack Obama's reelect, Deputy Campaign Manager for Joe Biden's presidential win, former Ambassador to Denmark for the United States, and current Chief of Protocol uh, ambassador level rank for the U.S. State Department and really for the entire country, Ambassador Rufus Gifford. Thank you for being with us and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jared. It's uh, wonderful to be with you. Uh, so, Ambassador, you are the Chief of Protocol for the State Department and really for the United States of America. Could you start by telling our listeners what that role entails? Yeah, you know, it's it's a, it's a complicated one because I actually don't think the title really encapsulates what the actual job is. The, the way I describe it, I think, especially for folks who don't work in government, is that we're in essence, we're the primary liaison between foreign governments and the Biden administration. So any time the president, the vice president, first lady or secretary of state are engaging with their foreign partners, um, we are the we are the people who execute that. We are the people who um, make sure not only does it does it happen in a flawless way, and it's always my job, of course, to keep it flawless, um, but also what, what we try to say is that we try to create an environment in which diplomacy can thrive. It's not the hard diplomacy. Um, it's more of the soft diplomacy. But look, you know, we live in a world where I, I think especially one, coming out of the Trump administration, but two, in the post-COVID era, um, real human-to-human engagement, uh, people are so hungry for it. Um, And that's really the work of protocol. Uh, It's the work of trying to build bridges between countries, uh, uh, and um, which is sort of the, the backbone, in my mind, of diplomacy. President Biden very often says that, you know, the 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 diplomacy starts with human relationships and what we really try to lean into is uh is that very very those very very special human relationships so that's kind of like a, that that's that's a bit of a broad um sort of broad sweeping definition of what protocol is there's there's obviously much more specific ways to define what we do um but that's how i think about it at least and your travel has got to be nuts then. Like, you're, you're, you're going everywhere. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I, uh, on Thursday, we are wheels up. We're, uh, uh, we'll board Air Force One, fly to Egypt, uh, then on to, to Shemel Sheikh for the COP. Uh, and then from Shemel Sheikh, we fly to Phnom Penh, Cambodia uh, for the U.S. ASEAN Summit. And then from Phnom Penh, Cambodia, uh, we move on to Bali, Indonesia for the G20. So that is, uh, that is what um, – that's the work. That's the work that we do. Anytime the president travels overseas, um, I travel with him. 
So the key question everyone is asking is, what's Air Force One like? Uh, <laughs> you know, we, I guess we've never asked any of our guests who, who have been on Air Force One before. So you can tell us, you know, what's your favorite part of Air Force One? Where do you hang out? What, what, do you have your chair? Do you have your snack bar? What you know? What, what's your thing on Air Force One? I do. I, I actually every time I've flown, I think we've done uh, the most recent trip we did is uh, to attend uh, Her Majesty's funeral in London, uh, and that was my fifth trip overseas with the president in California in calendar year 2022. Uh, and it will go, as I said, in my sixth uh, in just a couple of days. Um, I do have the seat that I sit in every time. It's sort of in this, what they call kind of like a senior staff cabin, uh, just a little bit behind where um, the president and, and the and most senior staff sit. Uh, but it, it's wonderful. I will say this, that, you know, we're in the process of the government's actually pur purchased some new planes, uh, which are a little bit more modern because uh, I believe this version of Air Force One dates from the 80s. So, you know, there, there's there's still some uh, there's it's still probably it's there's still some upgrades that need to be made. But that being said, I will never, ever, ever complain about flying on that. It, the moment, as I say, always the moment you don't get goosebumps when you're walking on board um, that remarkable aircraft is the moment you probably need to be doing something different because it is enormously special. Now, Ambassador, you you also oversee Blair House, which is yes. sort of a, a very interesting, uh, oftentimes overlooked asset of the U.S. government. It's right across the street from the White House. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of Blair House and what it's come to be used for today? And then I have some follow-up questions about all the cool stuff you've been doing at Blair House okay. of late. But, but tell us a little bit about Blair House, how it came to be, what it is today. Yeah, sure. So um, Blair House is very simply the president's guest house. So uh, and not president, they're not the president's guest house for, you know, friends and family. It's where his um, largely there, there are some ex exceptions to this. For example, it's where the president actually stays the night before he or she is inaugurated. Uh, but when a foreign leader is in town for a certain scale of visit, um, like a state visit, for example, they will stay at Blair House. And it, we consider it a five star hotel in that sense. Um, and we roll out the red carpet for our world leaders, for the president's guests. Um, but it is a little bit more than that, Jared, to, to your, the point that you're making, and it's something we very much want to want to lean into. In many ways, we want it to be a bit of an extension of the people's house, meaning the White House, in the sense that um, – but have it have, of course, sort of a, a, a foreign a, – a place to entertain our foreign guests – um, not just the leaders, but also the folks, for example, who are living and working in Washington, like the diplomatic corps, uh, the diplomatic corps that we are um, we are primary contacts of as well. So not only do we want to try to do substantive activities there, for example, we're going to be trying we'll, we'll assemble um, the entire diplomatic corps to hear from a, a cabinet secretary. We'll do some topical, some interesting, some um, some issues based events that are substantive but also a little social, a little fun. And I, I learned this because I think this is enormously uh, important. And what I learned the last time I was an ambassador, that the the power to convene, the power to bring people together in these remarkable venues, um, there's so much there's so much value in that. Um, and it's something that I think we overlook uh, or we don't think about enough. So when I think about these spectacular venues, and for those of you who have not been to Blair House, uh, it is, I, I think, I, I'm not sure exactly the words you used, Jared, when you asked the question. It is 
one of the most beautiful, beautiful buildings that the U.S. government owns. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, that should be shared. So uh, we're going to try to think about this a little differently, try to open it up and share it with our foreign guests and, and use it as an opportunity to really advance uh, Biden administration foreign policy um, uh, in, in, you, by utilizing that sort of the soft power that comes inherently in many ways with doing an event at Blair House. And recently, Ambassador, you had a Halloween event at, at Blair House, but also a little bit before that, you built a sukkah at, at Blair House, right? And, and this is That's the way. piece that I really want to know about because when <laughs> I was at NSC, yeah. I, was, I was starting to poke my head around saying, can we have a sukkah? Yeah. And I was talking to some people and maybe there's a Chabad rabbi who was involved as he usually would be. And supposedly I was like, oh, no, no, Jared's working on it. You know, Ivana's working on not it. Not me, by the way. You're not, you're not, you're not talking so, about me, Jared. You're talking I, about the yeah, other Jared. Yeah, no, not different Jared. Okay, different, okay, yeah, okay. Not you're just, just checking. Okay. But, 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 but the answer was, you know, Secret Service supposedly said no. Really? Know, it was like a security threat or something. So I'm, I'm like, I saw this and I was like, I'm dying. First of all, whoever thought about Blair House, brilliant idea. Yeah. You know, instead of doing it on West Exec, how did it get done is what I want to know. You know, it's it, the, the truth is I really do. Look, there's no doubt in my mind, there, and I think we all know this, that uh, working in government, the bureaucracy is, is, is certainly a little bit more extensive than it is in the private sector. Everyone knows that. That being said, I do believe still that when there's a will, there's a way. Um, and if we can align with Biden administration foreign policy on issue after issue, we can figure out a way to get something done. So when it comes to this event, which was such a special event, I could talk about it all day long. Uh, because it's exactly the kind of stuff that I want to be doing more of. Um, we we had this idea to partner with the Special Envoy to Combat Anti Anti-Semitism um, and her office uh, to um, to how could we talk about the work that she is doing um, and her office is doing with um, and but actually not not just try to not, not just try to preach to the converted which i think is oftentimes such the mistake that we make in government is that we're oftentimes just talking to the same people that agree with us anyway so how can we think about this a little bit different but how can we also do it in a way that's a little bit softer a little bit sort of uh, how can we sort of celebrate over a meal how can we enjoy ourselves while having a substantive conversation. And that's where this all came from. Um, so we built the, uh, the we built the sukkah outside. Um, if, on, so the, what it was, was this, the occasion was the Sukkot dinner. Um, we built the sukkah outside. We got Doug Emhoff, uh, the second gentleman, uh, uh, to come in addition to the special envoy to combat anti-Semitism, um, the, uh, uh, the uh, ambassador at large for religious freedom at state, as well as most uh, the, the ambassadors uh, we invited were potentially not the ones you'd expect. It wasn't just the Israeli ambassador, who, of course, was there with his spouse, um, but also mostly Arab state ambassadors, um, and many of whom had never been to an event like this, um, had never stood under a sukkah before. And we had this conversation and we had this debate and it wasn't about necessarily just high, just, just getting a, 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 a public diplomacy message out there. It was part, that was part, but it was also about advancing a, a larger Biden administration narrative about uh, the, the rise of anti-Semitism in the world, um, and both frankly at home and abroad, um, and what we can do as the global community to fight it. And I, I have to say, you know, when I think about those sorts of events, I, I get, uh, 
I do get, I, I get very, very excited about the work that we can do um, because everybody shows up when you invite them and they, and they have this, and they have this conversation and it was not in any way antagonistic. Um, it was a very thoughtful um, um, and positive event. And, um, you know, and we got to eat some delicious food and, and learn a little bit about a holiday that yeah, I, I have in, in over the course of my life, um, I had had one meal, uh, one Sukkot meal, um, but I learned a little something, and and uh, and I think we advanced American foreign policy in the same at the same time, and that's pretty damn exciting as far as I'm concerned. I mean, Rich, it's true. You often have non-Jews at your Passover, at your Rosh Hashanah, even now at your breakfast. But I feel like Sukkot is sometimes like the next level down in terms of bringing in people who are not of our community. So as they say, I always I always thought that when we had their Sukkah in Afghanistan as I was deployed, I always thought this is the moment, right? Let's let's uh, Taliban, like, let's bring them in. Like, they'll get it. Let's sit under the Sukkot again. This could be it. No one on the security team thought that was a good idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so, I mean, you know, we'll but, keep trying. Ambassador, guess. as they say in Hebrew, kol uh, hakavod to you, which that's means, very cool. That's a which very means cool like story. all, all, all honor to you for doing something pretty awesome well, uh, and, and well, moving all, the ball forward. All I know is that if uh, if you all ever want to invite me to your your sukkah your sukkah dinner next year, I, I'm uh, I'm all I'm all in. So my, my, I will say my sukkah in Afghanistan is no longer available. <laughs> However, uh, you, you can definitely come to my backyard though. I, I would love I'd be honored. Uh, you did have a recent guest uh, in President Herzog, which we were all, you know, looking at from the outside uh, for you a working visit. Um, love to kind of understand from you, you know, how, how did that go? What's the difference for your purposes of a working visit versus a state visit? How do you figure out which one it's going to be? Yeah. It, it really usually those determinations are made by at the highest levels at the NSC, um, and it will depend on a whole number of different things. I think that. Um, understanding sort of what from our side needs to be accomplished during that visit. Um, there's several different classifications. There's four technically. One is personal, meaning a foreign leader coming to the coming to Washington and not engaging um, any White House officials. The second one is a, a working visit, which is what President Herzog's uh, trip was. Uh, what that means is it is an official visit, meaning he is coming to meet with the president, which means that he I, I, I was at Dulles at four o'clock in the morning uh, greeting him um, and uh, and we were essentially with him. The, the majority was some the member of my team was with him uh, for the entirety of the trip. Um, but it is it's a it's a lower classification of a, of a meeting with the president above and beyond that. There's an official working um, visit, which comes with a Blair House stay, and above that, it's a state visit. And, and ultimately, this is just a determination made by uh, the State Department. The top two classifications are very rare, I will tell you. Um, we do have President Macron coming for our first state visit on December 1st. Um, that's the first one of the Biden administration. And over the course of calendar year 2022, since I started my job, there have only been two uh, official working visits from leaders, and that was Ireland, um, which is typical every year. It's kind of a tradition at the White House for St. Patrick's Day um, and Greece, which is similar as well, that we have a history of celebrating Greece. Um, I think it's Greek Independence Day. Um, so those have been the only times where foreign leaders have actually stayed at Blair House over the course of my tenure as as uh, um, as chief of protocol. So the vast majority are working visits, which were the, which is what President Herzog's visit was. So Rufus, I, I, I have two questions. Sorry, Ambassador. Please, I've known Rufus you for a very is long fine. Time, it's true. So, it's true. Um, 
Um, so, so two, two questions. One is how, I mean, I got to imagine that the planning for these visits gets crazy detailed, right? I remember this scene, uh, Rich and I are both junkies of the show West Wing mm-hmm. and Lily Tomlin is walking around a summit table with a, with a, uh, a ruler to make sure that everybody's pad, when they're doing the big summit with the Israelis and the Palestinians, that everybody's pad is the same amount of inches from the ground. Like, how crazy detailed does it get in terms of the planning when you're get, when you're hosting a foreign leader for, for anything, but particularly for a working visit or a state visit? Well, so it, it, it's a great question, Jared, and it is a it is a intense. It's intensive, is what I would say. So, um, it does depend on the visit. So, if for a working visit, um, from the White House standpoint, this is fairly. You might use the term cookie cutter, meaning the way it works is that um, the leader will arrive. There will be roughly hour, maybe hour and 15 minutes or so um, of the president's time on the calendar. Um, The leader will show up at the West Wing. They'll do a head into the Oval. Uh, They may have some one on one time with the president. There'll be a pool spray, some remarks on the record and then the bilateral meeting. So this tends to be the, the while the detail, while it's very detailed, it's also comes from a fairly standardized playbook. Um, I think for when it comes to things like state visits, it's it's extraordinary more it's extraordinarily more complicated because of all the kind of bells and whistles associated with the state visit. So tend, we tend to have three months of like, for example, for the Macron, the France state visit on December 1st. We have we've essentially had three months of planning and um, I have daily interaction with the White House um, and other folks as it relates to and and the French embassy and all the rest as it relates to how this is going to work um, from arrival to departure. And it's um, because it all does matter. I think, you know, the work of protocol and Jared, you've known me for a, a long time. No one. No one has ever accused me of being an extensively detailed person or someone who has a great knowledge of protocol. And it's true, I haven't. And when they asked me to do this job, my first instinct was, are you sure you have the right guy here? Because I'm not a social secretary. I'm not an advanced person. You know, the skill set that you ne- that necessarily lends itself to protocol Um stereotypically, but it's so much more than that. This work is so much more than any one thing. And it really is kind of that, that human intangible connection connection that actually makes um, protocol sort of thrive. And, and that's what we try to focus on here. So it is, it is about the details, meaning it is about very, it is about the specificity. Um, so everyone knows exactly what to expect. I think, laying out expectations and making sure that you meet and or exceed those expectations is very, very important. But it's it's a little bit more than that. It's kind of the intangible need to make your foreign guests feel like it, it, it's, a, it's a, the consummate host, right? It, it's trying to make people feel uh, comfortable, respected, um, and, and, and that is a lot of, that's a lot of what we do with the planning. Um, what, what kind of decisions that do we need to make on the president's side or the first lady's side or the vice president's side or the secretary of state's side to make our foreign guests, uh, feel the way that we want them to feel, um, over the course of this visit. And, and it's, it's, it's a lot of what we try to do. So, Ambassador, and you definitely spoke to this, but I want to give you an opportunity to put a fine point on it because, you know, 
any American president can talk to any prime minister or any president of any country within a half an hour, yeah. right? Like that's that's the state of technology. Yeah. Um, so th- there are those, I am sure, um, Rich and I are not two of these people, but but there are people who say, do the visits even matter anymore, oh. right? Like if the president can get prime any prime minister in the world on the phone in a half an hour, and Rich, you wanted to add something to the question. I, I, I put I put it a little differently in some cases, you know, because some some of the issues we talk about a lot come to mind, right? And, and there's certainly plenty of other bilateral comparisons, but you know, if there is a real policy difference, right, and the president has made up his mind that this is U.S. policy on something, and the foreign leader coming is coming maybe for a domestic audience, got to check the box. You know, they, they need to go through. They want to raise the issue. Iran deal is a good example. You know, things like uh, that. Rich. And no, no, we don't have to go into the Iran deal. But, you know, this is, this is, I'm just curious, have you observed in, in watching the interactions a time when you saw one of the foreign leaders, not, don't put Israel in this context, a different foreign leader, right? The president or the other foreign leader, like at, over the course of conversation, say, you know what? Um uh, that's a good point. I, I want to take that into consideration. Yeah. Let's let's go back and think about it. So that. I will say it this way. I, I think that it goes back to, I think, what Jared was getting at in his question and then, Rich, I think, in your follow-up question. I think because ultimately – so taking a step back, I think that, you know, it's simply – we are human beings and the work of diplomacy that all of us, we've all engaged in uh, over the course of our lives and careers, it is just simply not – best to engage in diplomacy virtually, meaning phone calls, Zoom calls, whatever it may be. And they serve an enormous purpose. I'm, I'm not saying they don't. Um, you know, secure telephone calls. And I've done a lot of those. You know, we've done a lot of we, we, we've done a lot of calls from the Situation Room and, and, and there's a lot co- accomplished there. But simply nothing can beat eye contact, handshakes, sitting across a table from someone, whether that is your best friend in the world and you're just looking to figure out how you can solve a global crisis together or someone who you fundamentally disagree with um, and that you're trying to come up with some sort of common, uh, some sort of path forward about whatever event that we're talking about. And I've seen both of them firsthand. But the fact of the matter is diplomacy, you know, diplomacy is best when it's... uh, when it's in person, diplomacy is best. Uh, when you can sit face to face, look at each other, human to human. Um, I, I just think it's uh, it's much more effective. And um, so, I think Jared, your question was: Is there a place for this? I I don't even think there's just a place for it. I think that we need to be leaning into it more and more and more in a post-Trump world. And you know, I, I don't want to say this in a post-Trump administration world. And in a post-COVID world, um, that is what we need to be leaning into aggressively. And I hope that we continue to do that. And I know that's something that this president and this secretary of state are enormously passionate about. I'll give you an example here, too. It's, you know, Justin. So my next three weeks, I mentioned that we're going to Egypt, Cambodia and Indonesia. We're going to be obviously engaging with a number of uh, world leaders at the G20, some of whom we have not yet engaged with in person. Um, after that, we have the state visit. And after that, we have the Africa Leaders Summit, where we're inviting 50 plus Africa leaders to Washington. So at the end of calendar year 2022, you're going to have the biggest and most influential, with the exception of, uh, you know, probably a, a, a one a, a 
leader that uh, is, is quite obvious where we haven't directly engaged with him. Every other country in the world, the president of the United States will have sat down with and engaged with directly. And of course, there's probably a few exceptions out there. But the, the fact that from the largest countries to the smallest countries, how we, we hosted the Pacific Island Nations um, some 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 of these countries have a, a tiny population, but they're still important. And the point the point here is that human engagement, that personal connection between our president and that world leader, it matters and there is no substitute for it. And I very much hope that whether it's this president or presidents in the future understand that and they lean into it, because I think there is inherent value um, in that type of engagement. And ambassador, you're a two-time ambassador, right? Which yes, is sir. sort of like, um, which is like being on the all-star team twice. <laughs> so you were ambassador to Denmark for President Barack Obama for the for the end of his term. Um, tell us how this job and that job differ. They're both ambassador yeah. jobs. They're both confirmed by the Senate. I, I remember living through both of you. But like, what what? How are they different? So it it is. So when I was ambassador to Denmark, I think that. So the, first of all, there's nothing like being a chief of mission. So there is nothing like serving as an ambassador overseas in the sense that you have um, you're obviously part of the U.S. bureaucracy still, but you kind of have your own little kingdom um, in which you can live and work and thrive in. Uh, and very much the buck stops with you. So it, it, it's it's it is an extraordinary experience. Um, and I loved it. And obviously I could talk about that all day long. This job is different in that it is very much like right at the center of the American bureaucracy. So I am, I'm chief of protocol of the United States. I, I, I technically live at the state department, but a good, at least 50% of my job is white house. So it's this interesting nexus existing in kind of this interesting nexus of power. Um, so I would say that, you know, from a influence standpoint, this job is, um, it, it's extraordinary in the sense that you are right there anytime that uh, in every major sort of foreign policy engagement that the U.S. government has at the secretary level um, or above, you and your office is part of. And, and that's that's extraordinary. Uh, that is not true when you're a bilateral ambassador. You would know everything about your country and your relationship with that country. But globally, that's not true. And this in this context. Um, it is global. I will say that, you know, the chief of protocol job isn't the, the hard foreign policy lane um, that even then being a chief of mission, that being an ambassador is. Um, it, but as it relates to being a fly on the wall for all of the major uh, sort of uh, interesting and substantive engagements that the president is, is uh, um, investing in globally, I, I you know, there, there's really no substitute for that. But um, it, it's, uh, they, they are, but, but honestly, I would never trade my life experience, you know, having been able to do both of these now, um, is something that I continue to sort of pinch myself, uh, that what did I do to deserve, uh, uh, having these kinds of opportunities. And so I just want to try to never take that for granted and, and do everything I possibly can with this very limited amount of time I have, uh, in each of these jobs. And you weren't just an ambassador last time. You were also a reality TV star, as I've learned, uh, I need to watch these shows if I can understand them. <laughs> there are which there are some there are subtitles. I have seen some Danish television. I, I you know I'm I I'm you know Borgen and uh, and and the rest uh, you know 
uh, if you if you want to move over to like Norway occupied, <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, like, there's good there's some good television out there, some good Netflix shows. First, you know, tell us a little, tell our audience a little bit about your time uh, doing the reality show, and have you thought about doing that in this job? Would they even let you? Well, I will call it I I call it a documentary series, not a reality show, but it's it, it, it's it's uh, it is what it is. So I, I will say this: so th- it's it is easily the most unexpected thing that has happened to me over the course of my professional life. And and this is what happened. So um, it was very much grounded in uh, what we were trying to do uh, overseas. So um, just to give you a little bit of context, when I, when I arrived in Denmark, which was the end of 2013, what I, what I learned really quickly is that there was a whole generation of Europeans and largely sort of left leaning Europeans um, that had lost interest or trust uh, in the transatlantic relationship led by the United States. A lot of this was a hangover from the Iraq war in the sense that, you know, Danes had lost more people per capita in the Iraq war than any country or country other than, uh, other than the United States. And so, and there had never been, um, at least the way they felt, there had never been sort of an honest conversation from the Americans uh, with the Europeans as it relates to some of the mistakes that were made there. I'm not trying to relitigate this. That's That was never my point. My point was to try to build back the relationships that historically had been so rich because the the grandparents in Denmark had nothing but love for the United States because of uh, our role in World War II. And their children, um, who I'm 48 years old, maybe sort of people who are my age, a little bit older, um, grew up with that appreciation as well. But our children didn't. And so what I really wanted to try to do is engage a new generation of Europeans and try to talk about American diplomacy in a way that they would listen and not just preach to the choir. And it was an obsession of mine. Um, So we were approached by this small Danish television network that was geared towards younger people, 30 and younger, um, and asked if we could follow me around for uh, for a few months, uh, not every day, but, you know, at various events. And this is not atypical, honestly, that a lot of ambassadors do sort of day in the life of kind of uh, kind of uh, um, TV media engagements in their host countries. This was a little bit larger, of course. But what we didn't and, and it, this network was tiny. It was a brand new network. And we thought a few thousand people would watch it. And. It became this ends ended up being becoming this huge. And then, and then you broke the and then you broke you broke the internet. <laughs> well, the internet. it just becomes but it's Jared. It's sort of so. In short, what happened was it became this huge hit, and they ended up selling it to Netflix. So it was on TV in the U.S. and Canada and the U.K. and Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, and a few other countries in Europe. And I, I but what what spoke to me about this is that, and it got a bunch of attention, which meant me, like I got profiled in a whole bunch of American. Uh, media, sort of a whole bunch of American media outlets. But what it, it, and the show doesn't break, the show doesn't, you know, change anyone's life. It's fine. It's a happy little sort of day in the life of an ambassador. Hopefully you learn a few things. But I do think what it does represent in a time where people simply do not trust our institutions. They, and this isn't just true in the United States, it's true around the world. Can we do our little part by tearing down the walls a little bit in a way that's safe, in a way that's embraced by the embassy, um, in a way that's embraced by our security services so that we're not uh, of course, uh, leaving leaving no one more vulnerable, um, but in a way that can tell a story about American diplomacy that's inherently positive and actually tries to engage people in a meaningful way. And that's what we tried to do with the TV show. And I think that um, and it was it wasn't just the TV show is what we 
always tried to do when I was overseas. And, and, but so that's, that's the show. And it was just like a very sort of positive story. My public affairs officer in, in Copenhagen at the time said, you know, if this is, this had gone badly, we both would have been, uh, uh abruptly escorted out of the embassy very soon, <laughs> but, but it, it went, it was good. Like it was just a positive thing. And I think it, but it's a smart idea, right? Because we think about, you know, everybody's just, we have such in our mind and, you know, we think VOA is still the VOA yeah. that it was, you know, during the Cold War. But the truth is you're you're talking about what we need as totally. a VOA today. Yeah. I, look, I am I am very, very I'm obsessed with the idea of figuring out how as governments you can try to communicate with people in, in a way that um, reflects your values and get makes people interested. Because, look, let's also be clear, you know, I. I I was I was out there trying to talk about important issues for the United States, whether that was, you know, global trade or defense spending or whatever it may be. This is not something that the average everyday Dane was going to and that is going to pay pay very much attention to. But if the messenger, meaning me, meaning the U.S. ambassador was someone that they would listen to, then maybe they would. Um, and that I wasn't just some sort of, you know, sort of anonymous bureaucrat who they don't inherently trust. But to to Danes, I was Rufus and married to a, another man and had a dog that they loved. And it was human and, and it was humanizing my role. And it wasn't manufactured. It was real. Um, and, and but I found a way to communicate with Danes in a way that I actually think helped. And I don't know this. I guess, you know, maybe history would tell us one way or the other. But I believe it helped advance American foreign policy at the time uh, because of our ability to connect with the public uh, and make people in generally fond of the work that we were doing in Copenhagen. And and, and so you asked me, Jared, the, the essence of your question is, do I want to do something like that in this um, in this job? The answer is, look, you, you, you can never do lightning doesn't strike twice like this. Um, but I will tell you the kinds of things that I do want to do are, are like we were talking about the Sukkot dinner. Um, you know, we hosted a pride. So the Sukkot dinner at Blair house was the first ever Sukkot dinner at Blair house. Um, we did a pride event at Blair house, the first one ever. And we didn't just invite, you know, the Brits and the Canadians and, and the, the Dutch and the Scandinavians invited countries from around the world who may not be all the way there as it relates to LGBT equality and this similar kind of invitation structure um, uh, for the Sukkot dinner. Um, we want to try to advance this these arguments. We want to try to push them and we want to try to get people to think about them differently. And so um, those are the kinds of things that I want to do. And I want to do them in a way that does does not feel sterile. It does not feel stale. Um, and we can actually create a little bit of joy in the process. And I think that that can be a golden ticket to diplomatic success um, if we can figure out how to do it. And it is threading a needle that's a little bit complicated, but I'm, I'm obsessed with it. You mentioned the Halloween event, Jared, a little bit ago. Halloween had also never been done at Blair House. And so here we had all the ambassadors, the DCMs and their kids dressed up at Blair House in costumes and myself as well, by the way. And, you know, was it serious? What Did it advance American foreign policy? Not necessarily. But you know what it did? We convened a lot of our great partners and friends in one space under our roof. And ultimately, there's enormous um, power in that. There's enormous importance in that. Um, and uh, creating those joyful moments 
um, I believe is is my is partly a, a mandate of mine um, in this job. So I will continue to try to find those little moments um, over the course of this. It might not be a reality TV show, but I think you you can do it. Um, you can do it in different ways. Rich, I will tell you if you meet a Dane anywhere in the world and you tell them you had Ambassador Rufus Gifford on your podcast, their their face will like, I, I experienced this firsthand down in the Virgin Islands, which, you know, St. Croix, you know, the Virgin Islands was a, uh, a Danish colony for many years. So Danes tend to vacation in the Virgin Islands. And I would run into people at a restaurant and be like, yeah, I, I know Rufus. Like, well, like, and their face with their facial structure would light up and they're like, you know Rufus? And I'm like, yeah, he was like, you know, my, and, and, and so it, it works, right? It, it works and it humanizes the American body politic. And anyway, the two most famous people, Nyborg <laughs> and Giffen. Yes. That's right. Sorry. So Rufus, Ambassador, we're going to go to the lightning yeah, round where we're going to ask you three uh, quick questions yeah. just to get a little bit of more of a sense uh, of who you are before we let yeah. you go. Um, so the first one is your favorite restaurant in D.C., Oh boy, um, my favorite restaurant in DC. Um, I, so I'm gonna go to like this is crazy because it's it's I don't even know that it's my favorite food anymore, but it's where I used to go on like it's where I went on um, my first date, like some of my first dates with my now husband. So uh, it, it sort of has a special place in my heart, and that will be Tabard Inn. Okay, favorite historical figure in foreign policy. Oh boy. I mean, so are we, we're going international or domestic? Well, I'll just like, you can, you can okay. go either. You're an ambassador. You can yeah, do either. I mean, look, how do you, so like, this is hard to me. Cause it's like, how to, like, it just sort of, to me, I, I don't think I can ever find sort of a more important relationship as it relates to creating the modern world than, than Churchill and Roosevelt. All right. Ambassador, last question. And if you don't have an answer, it's totally Okay. Um, but do you have a favorite Hebrew, Yiddish, or Arabic word? Oh God! And profanity, pr- profanity is totally allowed. That got, that got pretty wide. Let, let's start with Yiddish. Which yeah, is yeah. The if, you had, if you had Yiddish, if great. you need to have an out from there, we can move into Hebrew. Well, I think it's like I mean, honestly, isn't uh, I mean I, to me because it's how I try to live my life. I mean, is it chutzpah's Yiddish, right? Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, very yeah. and and, and fun. That's a great one. You live your wait, wait. Just want to be just want to clarify. You live your life via chutzpah. That, that, no, 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 no. Yeah, that's, that's right. Fun. You can live your life via chutzpah. I mean, listen. I, I don't. I don't. What, what, what would be the what would be the actual? De- I I I only know the. the <laughs> You want to mean the opposite. You want to be a you're you're a chutzpah free life. You're a no, chutzpah no, free no, protocol. Rich, I, I, I free protocol. If you like go out and grab, I want to like I want. I, 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 it's like you want to you want to. Oh, I, oh, I, it's I the see bold, yeah, it's yeah, the, the, the oh. boldness. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. you go out like, and grab. Okay, yeah. that, it's you know what? This is a multifaceted word. Is you got to right? clarify which That's side of chutzpah you're yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I get it now. I get yeah, it. Yeah, because you could say yeah. you could say I hear oh, that. that person had a lot of chutzpah, exactly. and that's not always the the nicest thing to say about. But the way you were using, like you go and grabbing the life by the lapels and and willing credulous, right? Isn't, yeah. that, isn't that the word? Incredulous? You, you all, you, yeah. you, all right. Ambassador Rufus Gifford. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. We're never ending this call. I like Thank this. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate you. Thank I you so much. your time. It was fun. If you like the show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>